This is the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church Reno, we love God, love others, and make a difference. For more information, visit lifechurchreno.com. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Today, we're continuing in our series of messages out of 1 Peter and Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, wrote in his autobiography that during his uh, days as a student, he began to read the Gospels and seriously considered becoming a Christian. And can you imagine the difference it would have made had Gandhi, who led the nation of India towards freedom, now India, the second most populous nation on the planet, over 1.3 billion people, projected to ultimately become a larger population than even China. Can you imagine the difference it would have made had Gandhi become a committed follower of Jesus? Uh, the story's told that he one day actually visited a church. It was a uh, church that, that was uh, a predominantly white church in South Africa, and there was, it was an English church, and, and he went to visit the church in South Africa, and the, the greeter there let him know that because of the color of his skin, he was not welcome. Gandhi said it this way. He said, if Christians have a caste system, I might as well remain a Hindu. In fact, another moment, Gandhi said this. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Here's the, here's the big picture I want you to get today, that all of our lives, as followers of Jesus, all of our lives are either making it easier for the people that know us, the people that see our lives, all of our lives are either making it easier for someone to become a follower of Jesus or we're making it more difficult. All of our lives, by the way that we live, are either making the gospel more credible or we're making the gospel less credible. And so if you have your Bibles, go over to 1 Peter chapter 2. So Peter says there, verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, other translations say aliens, he's repeating this theme that he kicked off in chapter one, that as followers of Jesus, that, that we are strangers and aliens in this world, we're, either though we're living here, wherever we're living, that we're citizens of another kingdom with another king. And he says, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans, among the non-Christians, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let me read it to you out of the message from Eugene Peterson. Here's how he says it. Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and, there, and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. And so essentially, Peter's saying to these people, he says, he's saying, live lives in such a way that even people who, who think that the idea of, of, of the gospel, the idea of Jesus, even people that are fully opposed to it, to the point, he says, some people are so opposed to the idea of, of Jesus and the gospel, they think you're crazy. They're gonna say bad things about you because of this. They're, they're gonna accuse you of things because of this. He says, but live your lives in such a way that, that it causes people to, to at least slow down and think, 
maybe there is something to this whole Jesus deal. He talks about, he says, they will accuse you of wrongdoing or refute, and he talks about these prejudices. And so what he's talking about is in this culture marked with unbelief, even antagonism, where the instinct of the culture is to disbelieve the gospel. And many in the world naturally think negatively of Christians, even to the point where they're gonna accuse you of doing some wrong things. And so in the early church, the, the, the Christians were accused of some crazy things. Uh, one thing they were accused of is they were accused of being cannibals. Hey, you don't want to go to those that be with those Christians. They will eat you. And it was all rooted in, and you know, we, we take communion, we take the Lord's Supper, we take the Eucharist, and we say, hey, hey, this, this bread, it's a picture of Jesus's body, this wine, it's a picture of Jesus's blood. And so some casual listener said, oh yeah, I heard that, that they were eating some guy's body and drinking his blood. Those Christians, they're cannibals. Bad as that sounds, they were even, they, even worse, they were accused of being incestuous because God's made us all a part of this family together and, and we're brothers and sisters and maybe you've been in a, a more traditional church where everyone's like, hey, Brother Tom and Sister Sally and this and ever been to a church like that, the whole brother-sister thing and well, they were totally doing that and so hey, they'll be like, hey, don't become a Christian. I know one of those, he married his sister. They're like, oh man, they're, can they're cannibals, they're incestuous. They were claimed to trying to, to be insurrectionists because of this idea that they were a part of another kingdom with another king, and so they were accused of, of, of committing treason and wanting to overthrow the Roman Empire. They, they were accused, you won't believe this, they were accused of being atheists. Oh, those Christians, you know, they don't believe in God. And what they meant by that is, is they didn't believe in the Greek and Roman pantheon of all of these pagan gods. And they wouldn't see Caesar. They wouldn't see the emperor as God. And so they're being accused of all of these things. They're cannibals. They're, they commit incest. They're, they're, they're treasonous. They're atheists. Peter says, hey, these people are gonna say terrible things about you. He says, but live lives that cause them to at least slow down and say, maybe there's something to this whole Jesus deal. Now listen, people today, they don't tell, call Christians, they don't, they don't claim that we're cannibals or, or, or incestuous or, or wanna commit treason or atheists, but there are things that regularly get said about Christians in our culture, uh, things that, that maybe, there's a, maybe we've earned these statements, maybe we haven't, things like this. Sometimes modern accusations would be that, oh, those Christians, they're so narrow-minded. Those Christians, they're self-righteous or they're judgmental or they're too political. Well, I'm of a different political party and all the, it looks like to be a Christian, you gotta be this one. And those Christians, it's all about politics. I think uh, th those things can be said, but I think the two that are, I think are the biggest, that are the most commonly said of, reason, of reasons people uh, think that Christianity might be false or negative things people say about Christians, I think it falls into to two categories. One, there's the claim that, that those Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. And if, and if by that they mean that we don't follow Jesus perfectly every single day, the answer to that is, yes, we are, and you're welcome to join us. But I think there's another side to that we'll talk about in a minute. And I think the other thing that, that, it, that many in popular culture would say about Christians, which, which um, would be this idea. Oh, those Christians, they, they hate everyone that they disagree with. They hate everyone that doesn't see the world just like them. And I believe what Peter tells us in these two little verses, I believe helps us live lives that, that go against 
those two major criticisms of Christians today. They're hypocrites and they, and they don't really, they hate everyone that they disagree with or everyone that doesn't see the world just like them. And so here's the two big things. I believe the two big things that, that, that Peter's calling us to are to live lives of holiness and to live lives filled with good deeds. See, Peter's been challenging these folks towards holiness this whole time. And so here, when he says in verse 11, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Other translations say passions of the flesh or fleshly lusts. He says to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your Soul. Now, Peter, through this whole book so far, we're only about a little bit over a chapter in, this holiness thing has been coming over and over and over again. We saw it in chapter one, verse 13. He says, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus comes back. He says, as obedient children, don't be like everybody else. You're not conformed to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I'm holy. And so Peter's continuing with this challenge to holiness. Last week, Peter tells us who we are, that we're this different people, that we're part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and that we're God's, God's special possession. And so now he's saying, because of who you are, because of what Jesus Jesus has done for you, you're gonna live different. He says, don't give in to every urge. Don't give in to every sinful desire. He says, he says because these things wage war on your soul. Really, he's talking about this same stuff that Paul talks about in Galatians. You say, what does he mean by, by, by the lust of the flesh or sinful desires? It's really the stuff Paul talks about in Galatians 5. Paul says it this way. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's the same stuff. He says, this stuff's obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. He, he says, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. And so what Peter here is saying is he's saying, don't give in to these fleshly desires. One, he says they wage war against your soul. The fleshly lust, these sinful desires, when we become a follower of Jesus, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven, and we're given God's Holy Spirit who's, who's transforming us to become more like Jesus, but we still have our flesh. We still have this, this sin nature, and we're constantly kind of this struggle between the two. Which one's gonna dominate our lives? There's this war. Peter talks about this war against your soul, and, and he says it this, this war term, it's, this, it's a strong term, it, it speaks of a long-term military campaign. And so what he's saying is, is he says that your fleshly nature, your, your sin nature, it's on this long-term war against your soul, a war against God's plan for your life and you becoming who you're meant to be, which is to become like Jesus. It wars against our soul, but uh, this, this, these sinful desires, this sin nature also wars against our influence. So here's the thing. When our language is like the prevailing culture, and when our sex lives are like everybody else, and our marriages are like the prevailing culture, and the way we raise our kids is like everybody else, and our business practices are like the prevailing culture, what we're doing is what we're, we're giving the world reasons not to believe. 
We're giving that guy that you work with who always says, oh, those Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. We're just reinforcing that for, for him. We're, we're, we're giving the world reasons not to believe. We're making the gospel less credible. But when we, live in, when we live lives as aliens and strangers, when we live lives of holiness controlled by the Holy Spirit and not the flesh, one is it's good for our souls, it's good for us, but it's also good for those who see us to at least notice the difference, to say, hey, that guy talks different and her marriage seems different and they seem like they're raising their kids different and they run their business differently. To at least slow down and say, there's, there's something different about them and I know they're Christians and I've never been into that whole Jesus thing, but may, maybe it's worth at least thinking about it. See, the way we live our lives is either making the gospel more credible or it's making the gospel less credible. And so Peter says, hey, one big piece of this is live a life of holiness. He says, don't give in to those, those sinful desires which we all fight against. Here's the second thing. Just live a life of holiness and then live a life marked by compassionate good deeds motivated by love for God and people. Here's what he says in verse 12. He says, live such good lives among the non-Christians that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. It's talking about when Jesus comes back, that, that, that you, that those who are against the gospel, those who are cynical, those who are doubting, those who don't believe, he says, live such a, such a good life marked by holiness where you really do live different and these compassionate good deeds that, that, that they end up coming to faith so that when Jesus comes back, they are a part of the, the crowd of God's people. And, and so, this thing is this, when our life is marked by good deeds, it's enough for people to slow down and say, maybe there really is something to this whole Jesus thing. That's really a big part of why the early church grew so quickly. Let me read you this. In AD 165, and so really the second or third generation of the church, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, there was this giant plague that swept through the Roman Empire. The mortality rate was so massive that Aurelius wrote of caravans and wagons hauling away the dead. Christians sought ways to help, and there was this letter written from Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria to those who had nursed the sick and to those who were giving their lives. Get this, most of our brothers, so you have to understand, in the ancient world, there were no hospitals. You know who started hospitals? Christians. He says, and, and most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departing this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. He says, many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of elders, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that in death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith seems in every way the equal to martyrdom. 
See, these good deeds, these, these compassionate good deeds where there was this incredible plague and, and everybody in their right mind fled the city centers, these Christians, they said, we're gonna stay and we're gonna take care of people. And even if me taking care of them means that I end up dying in their place, this picture of the gospel, these compassionate good deeds fueled the growth of the early church to the point where, where, where those that... that Weren't Christians noted that there was this uh, letter that in 362, Emperor Julian, he, he said, he recognizes that Christianity is growing rapidly because these Christians are living these lives of compassionate good deeds. Here's what he said. He urged the pagans that they needed to, quote, equal the virtues of the Christians for recent Christian growth was caused by their moral character and their benevolence towards strangers and care for the grave of the dead. He goes on, he says, I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by us, he says, these Christians observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. He said, they support not only their own poor, but ours as well. He says, everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. And so here's the thing. When Christians, when we live lives of compassionate good deeds for each other, for sure, but also for people that don't yet know Jesus, people that might disagree with us on social issues and might disagree with you on political issues, might look at everything in the world the opposite of the way you do, but you still live this life of these compassionate good deeds. That's what's happening here. What it does is it deals with that second, the second big thing everyone says. They say, those, those Christians, they're a bunch of hypocrites because we're not living lives of holiness. And then they say, those Christians, they hate everyone that doesn't see the world the way they do. But we, these early Christians literally giving their life to help and serve people that saw everything in the world differently than they did. It becomes this compelling thing that makes someone say, hey, I've always thought religion was a crock and I've never believed in Jesus and all of this, but there's something different about these people. I need to at least step back and reconsider. It gives a reason for the gospel to be more credible. I'm spitting this morning a little more than normal. No one walked down here, it's slippery. And so... Uh, I'm gonna rain it back. <laughs> See, these lives of compassionate good deeds marked by a love for God and love for people, it fueled the growth of the early church. And I love it when I see these things happening among the people of Life Church, people giving their lives away, whether that's in ministry in this church, whether that's serving the neediest in our community, volunteering at low-income schools, getting involved in foster care. I got today to meet on the way in the service. There's a little 10-day-old baby in our church named Jaden, who a family at Life Church, this, this baby was just born at the hospital, had nowhere to go. Washoe County called this couple and said, can this baby come to your house? And they said, we'll come and get her right now. The little 10-day-old baby in this service, they named Jaden. Isn't that incredible? And so, uh, <laughs> check out this video of a family at Life Church giving their life away in compassionate service in, uh, in foster care. Check this, check this out. I went to uh, Minogue High School for a couple years, and then I switched to Damani when it opened, and that's where I met David. And um, 
We met because my sister and him were really good friends. Um, and so just through her, we started kind of getting to know each other and dating. And then we got married um, when we were 19. Um, and we've been together ever since. We waited a while to have kids. Um, we didn't end up having kids until my, my last deployment to Afghanistan. We had a traumatic first pregnancy, unfortunately, and um, had a stillbirth. So that was like something that we had waited so long to have kids and um, then to have that happen. And that was something that God brought us through again. So we tried again and right after that, we got pregnant again. And yeah, we had a couple kids right after one after the other after that. And uh, we started feeling that calling for more kids, but we knew biologically we just didn't want to have any more that way. So we were kind of praying about what that means. Foster care just kept coming back up and it was something to me that was so scary. Um, growing up in a traumatic childhood myself, I can see how kids you know, react to those things and how hard it is. And I just was kind of like, I don't know if I can parent that. I want to, but it's so scary. One day, uh, Bree talked to me about it, and she was like, hey, I, I really think God's putting this on our hearts. We need to be foster parents. And I was like, all right. And one day, I was like, I got home from work, and it was like, go check the mail. David felt the Lord was telling us to check the mail randomly at like 9 o'clock at night one night. We had no nothing we were looking for or waiting for, so it was kind of odd. Um, he finally checked the mail, and we got this letter for from uh, Shasta County. And they were like, hey, your, your nephew's in foster care, would you like to meet him? He's going up for adoption. I think it was like the, that next weekend that we uh, went out and visited him. And ever since then, we're, we just kept going. So since May, um, we've had about eight kids in our home, just in and out. We've been able to impact their lives pretty, pretty good. Navigating foster care with, with my biological kids has actually been fairly easy. All, all my kids are very welcoming. They, they love it. They have conversations with us about how they can, you know, make it better for the, for the other kid who's here who doesn't have a mom who loves them or a dad who loves them or cares for them, you know, like they do. And so they're totally selfless in that, and that's really awesome to see. I mean, when when a kid comes into the house, my my kids are like, "Hey, do you want to see our bunnies? Do you want to do you want to come play toys?" And it's amazing to see that they're just they're so open to help these kids who have been through through hell, I guess. Very early in, you know, when I was two or three, my dad made it very clear that he did not want me and my siblings, and. Um, that was very hard. Um, even though you know later it's not your fault, it still hurts, you know, it's still like, why am I not good enough? And so I've always had those feelings and so I know how that feels. And knowing how strong my mom was during that and knowing what even just one parent or one person in your life can change everything. And so that's always been very important to me that these kids, even if they're in our house for a month, you know, that they have one person that they know cares about them and cares about what happens to them and shows them that the Lord cares even more than that. It's just been awesome to to step in and me and Brianna in this this home just introducing these kids to to the Lord and and being that that father figure that these kids don't have.
David had just an awesome afro there at one point. Did y'all see the picture with the afro? I've watched this video six times, so I'm able to look for all the details like that. It's one mad fro right there. Um, so these, uh, let me talk, share with you just a few quick things about good deeds real quick. Uh, first, uh, we are saved unto good deeds, not by them. Paul, Ephesians 2, 8 says, it's for it's by God's grace, God's kindness that we don't deserve, that you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourself. See, if we were saved by good deeds, it would be on us. It would be, look at what we did. But the idea of the gospel is there's nothing we could ever do that would be enough. So God did it for us by grace. He says, we're not saved by works so that no one can boast. And it would be easy if the verse stopped there to say, oh, I guess good deeds don't matter. And so, but then Paul says, for we're God's handiwork. Uh, Other translation, you could translate that word masterpiece. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so we're saved unto good works, not by them. That's not what gains us God's favor, but, but good works really do matter, these, these good deeds. In fact, good deeds are a part of our destiny. I like what Paul says. He says, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so before you were ever born, uh, God had good deeds in store for you to do. They're a part of his plans for you. And, and so when we live these lives of these compassionate good deeds, motivated by our love for God and love for people, what we're doing is we're actually fulfilling the, the, this purpose that God has had for our life from the very beginning. Here's the third thing about good deeds. Good deeds lead to goodwill that opens the door for the good news. Let me show this to you. Acts chapter two, verse 42. One of my favorite passages of scripture says they, they talk about the very first church. They're these brand new Christians in Jerusalem. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're learning God's word and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. They're having communion and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. There was this incredible sense of God's presence and, and uh, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, there's this evidence of God's power. People are praying. God's answering prayer, just like we're seeing here today. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So what we're seeing here is we're seeing radical generosity like the world had never seen, not because people were told to, not because the government said, hey, we're gonna take from you and give this person that stuff. This was people simply willingly saying, you have need and I have resources and so my extra is gonna become your supply and if I need to sell stuff, there was just this radical generosity so that there were no poor among them. There were these incredible good deeds. Let me show this to you. They gave to anyone who had need Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts together in large groups like we're doing here. They broke bread in their homes. They got together in small groups like our life groups do. And with glad and sincere hearts, they were praising God. They were worshiping God because they'd gone from death to life, darkness to light. Everything had changed. They were worshipers. Uh, Get this. And they were enjoying the favor of all of the people. See, good deeds lead to goodwill. But then what, what happens? And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, good deeds lead to goodwill. They were enjoying the favor of all of the people. Now, there are seasons throughout church history 
where, where there has been seasons of great persecution like we see here and, and the people that Peter's writing to. But the normal thing is that when Christians will live lives of holiness and live lives of radical compassion, good deeds motive, of, of compassion, motivated by love for God and for people, the normal thing is that there is then goodwill that then leads to people saying, hey, I'd like to learn a little bit more about this Jesus you're always talking about. I'm curious. I never believed before, but the, the way that you're living your life differently and the way in which your, love is, your, your life is marked by these compassionate good deeds that don't even make any sense in the natural, I'm, I'm, it's enough for me to stop and say, hey, it's worth thinking about. This has become more credible, more believable because of the way you're living your life. See, these good deeds lead to goodwill. Can you imagine? Imagine this. So what we see in this early church is there's such radical generosity, these good deeds, that, that, that there were no poor. Can you imagine what would happen in Reno if all of the Christians, we came together and said, hey, hey, there's, whatever, there's a big problem in Reno. We're gonna fix it. Hey, with this homelessness issue in Reno, we, we as Christians, we're just gonna tackle it. And whatever we gotta do to figure this out, whether it's job training or mental health or helping people get free of addiction or, or, or simply people that, 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 that no matter what, they're just so, so, their life's so challenging and they've got disabilities, they're never gonna be able to have enough money just by working. And so we're going to meet the needs. Listen, I'm all about lower taxes and all of that and less government programs, but that only works when the people of God do what the people of God are supposed to do. It's not the government's job to take care of the poor. It's our job. Amen. But we, and, and so when, can you imagine if we said, hey, Washoe County, you don't have to look anywhere else to find foster parents. The, the people of Jesus in this county will take every single one you got. And you don't, you're no, you don't have to worry about these kids in under-resourced schools that, that, that have no one to teach them English. You don't have to worry about that anymore. We're gonna take care of all of that. Can you imagine the goodwill that would come where people say, hey, I've always thought that whole Jesus thing was a sham. I've never been a religious person. But, but the way in which you're living makes me feel like I gotta step back and say, you know what, maybe there's something to it. The way in which you're living your life of holiness, where your sex life doesn't look like everybody else's, and your marriage doesn't look like everybody else's, the way you're raising your kids don't look like everybody else's, the way you're running your business looks a little different, the way you talk looks a little different, a life of holiness, and then good deeds of compassion motivated by love that people just have to slow down and say, maybe there's something to it. I love how Tim Keller talks about the early church how these two concepts coming together of holiness and good deeds. Here's what he said. Love this. He says, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The non-Christian society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. It's a different kind of life. It's a life of holiness and good deeds of compassion, which will cause a lost world to say, maybe, maybe there's something to that whole Jesus thing. So let me ask you a couple of questions. One, if you're being honest, is the way you're living your life 
giving more credibility to the claims of Jesus, to the people that know you, the people that are watching? Is it giving more credibility to the claims of Jesus or is it giving less? And no matter where you're at on this, all of us as followers of Jesus, none of us have both of these things nailed. All of us have room to grow in both areas. And so my question for you as a follower of Jesus would be, of these two areas, which one do you feel like maybe the Holy Spirit's prompting you is the biggest area of growth? Is it this holiness thing, living a life that doesn't just look like everybody else's? Or is it giving your life away through compassionate good deeds? Which one of those is there more room for you to grow? Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you'd help us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would empower us to live lives rooted out of who we are because of what Jesus has done that we'd live lives of holiness, abstaining from those sinful desires that wage war against our souls. So God, I pray that you'd help us to live lives of holiness, born out of a love for you because of what you've done for us. And God, I pray that you'd help us to live lives rooted in compassionate good deeds, motivated by our love for you and our love for people, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do it in little ways and big ways. I'd help you. I pray that you'd help us to do it just as life happens and we just go through life and just little things along the way. And then, God, I pray that you'd put things that are hard, strategic things that you'd have us focus on to give our life away in these good deeds that you have prepared in advance for us to do. God, I pray you'd help us to live lives that make the gospel, what you've done for us in Christ, more believable not less. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this, and we'll see you soon.